Welcome to the C3 Church Podcast. Stay tuned for this week's message. Fantastic. God's good. God is good. Uh, This morning we are continuing our series on relationships. And uh, who knows, who, who here this morning needs help with relationships? I'm putting, hand, I'm putting both hands up. I'm putting both feet up. I need help. And so this, this series this month is all about that, equipping us as believers to become better, stronger in relationships. Now, relationships, there, there's certain types of things. Where you could talk about many things when it comes to relationships. You could talk about the skill of relationships. If you imagine an iceberg, as you know, most of the iceberg is underwater. I mean, who remembers that from geography class? Most of the iceberg is, I've never been to an iceberg and I've, and I've never gone underwater to see it, but I believe it from the textbooks I read. That was apparently true. But under the water is, is most of the iceberg. On top, above the water, is what, if we talked about relationships, would be like the skill of relationships is that bit you see above, you know, the... You know, and I believe in those things. I read years ago a great book by Dale Carnegie called How to Win Friends and Influence People. I love that book. It was written in the 30s. It's awesome. And it has never gone out of fashion. And in that has, has great skills. And, and uh, I tried to apply a few of those. But if you can imagine under the water, 90% is what I would call the spirit of relationships. And, and we can learn about the skill but I believe the thing that really carries us the most and the thing we need to, to learn the most is the spirit of relationships. What does God say in His Word about relationships? And what powerful foundational principles are under the water that carry us through and in the meantime, learn some skills as well, which is absolutely brilliant. And I was going to call this message, Five Firm Foundations for Fruitful Fellowship and Friendship. <laughs> I was going to call the message that. But I couldn't because I came up with a sixth point and I just messed it all up. So this morning's, the title of this morning's message is nothing. I have no title for this morning's message. I'm just going to give you six really powerful things about relationships. Who's ready to listen actively? Anyone? Okay. Now, relationships are interesting. Relationships, I've discovered over time, the, the, the number of relationships, the type of relationships... And the complexity of the relationships increases over time. When you're little, five years of age, you got you and your mom and dad, and maybe a sibling or two. That's about it. As you grow, life adds relationships. And the types of relationships and the complexity. When I was 21, I was a single guy. When I was 22, I'm now married. When I'm 24, I have a child. When I'm 26, I have another one. When I'm 29, I have a third one. Now I'm a lot older. (laughs) I have two grandchildren. So I've gone from being a single guy to a married guy to a father to a grandfather. That's just in that arena. When I was younger, I was a student. And then I became an employee. And then I became a team member. And then I became a manager. And then I became an overseer of staff and and 100 staff uh, uh, that we're responsible for right now. Life gets complex. Life gets, and the type of relationships and who you are. My goodness, we need help. Life doesn't, life doesn't get simpler. I believe the the principles of the Word of God I'm going going to give you this morning are simple. 
But the, the, the context in which we apply them is complex. And God, we need the wisdom of God and the strength of God. And what I'm going to share with you this morning, they aren't Band-Aids. They, 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 and you have to figure out how to apply them in your context. And hopefully this morning, at least one of these things will help you in some measure or another, which is great. Okay. Now, first point, number one. Who's ready? Everybody say number one. Okay. Number one thing. As, as, as we understand relationships and learn in them, is that we have to understand that we are flawed. That we, every single one of us are flawed. And if we understand the fact that we are flawed, we will enter into and relate a lot better to people. If, there, if, if we don't understand the fact that we are flawed, then we will view relationships and other people with a wrong expectation because we don't understand how, how the fact that we are flawed as well. And I bring into my relationships my flawedness. Who's flawed by this point, anybody? Second <laughs> Corinthians 12, verse 9 to 10, one of my favorite passages. I use it a lot in preaching. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What does that mean? Does that mean I have to become weak to become strong? No, you are weak. Who, who feels weak sometimes? Anyone? You are weak. The key to strength is recognizing your weakness. The key to receiving grace is to recognize your need for it. And if you bring that revelation into every relationship, then, you're, then the, the feeling and tone of that relationship will be a lot healthier because you'll be on equal footing. Pride is the enemy of man. But God wants to, us to bring in our, into our relationships because what this brings in is authenticity. It brings in grace and it brings in respect. And suddenly those become the platform of our relationships with other people. Fantastic. Who's helped already? Philippians 1.6, I love this verse. It says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And, and, and what's the point here? The point is that we are all a work in progress. You, never not, you are never not a work in progress. You are a work in progress. Remember a, when I was a young believer, a young leader, a friend of mine said to me, Mark, whenever you are dealing with God's people, Imagine a neon flashing sign over every single person's head saying, work in progress, handle with care. And I thought, I've never forgotten that reality because every person we work with, every person we meet is a work in progress, but guess what? So are we. And if we bring grace into a relationship, others will bring a grace back to the relationship and suddenly we're in good, good shape. Anyway, who's with me so far? Floor. Number two, number two, forgive and forget. We have to forgive and forget forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a important part of or principle of, of relationships. Forgiveness is not an important part of the kingdom. Forgiveness is the very message itself. Forgiveness is the very center of, our, of the kingdom of God. The cross represents the greatest moment of forgiveness. And, the, and, and the, the great thing is, I love about the cross, and I've preached this before, is that while Jesus was on the cross reconciling God to men through the power of forgiveness, that was that universally, 
On the cross, universally, everyone was forgiven. How awesome is that? While he was doing that, he was physically forgiving the people who were committing the act to him that was causing the forgiveness to the world. And he said to the people that fill the cross, no, he said to God about the people that fill the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The highest level of forgiveness is not the forgiveness that is requested. The highest level of forgiveness is the forgiveness that is given even when the other person doesn't even know they need it. The Spirit of God, if, if forgiveness, boy, we need forgiveness in relationships, don't we? And, and if, if you get a hold of this part of your world and in your relationships, you'll find health and blessing and freedom begin to come into the thing because we all need forgiving regularly. We all need to forgive regularly. Peter came up to Jesus one day and thought he'd try to impress him and say, Jesus, how often should I forgive people? And, he, and, and he, before Jesus had a chance to answer, he answered for him seven times, thinking that he was impressing Christ. And Jesus looked back to him and said, Peter, no, 70 times seven, which I'm sure really, I don't know what it did to Peter, but it sort of didn't impress him too much. 70 times seven, 490 times. So some legalists would go, so we need to forgive 490 times. And if you offend me 491 times, it's over. <laughs> Jesus wasn't saying that. He wasn't, the concept there, the principle behind that is, and T.D. Jakes talks about it like this. He talks about forgiveness Receiving forgiveness and giving forgiveness, he calls it like breathing. It's, he said it's a closed system. And if you breathe, like when you're breathing in, you have to eventually exhale. Right. Forgiveness is I receive forgiveness, I give forgiveness. I receive forgiveness, I give forgiveness. It's a closed system. You can't just keep breathing and not exhale. It's impossible. <laughs> you will blow up. And if we keep receiving forgiveness, because Jesus went on to tell the story straight after that, that re re reply to Peter, he went and tell the story about a guy who owed a king much, so much that he couldn't repay the debt. Went and pleaded for mercy to the king. And, the, and, the, and, the, and he said, if you give me time, I'll be able to pay it back. And the king felt compassion for the servant and said, I forgive you of all the debt. How awesome is that? That person who was forgiven immediately went away and found someone who owed him a minute amount, the equivalent of 10 cents. And the person couldn't pay it. He pleaded for mercy to the person who was just forgiven, but cast this man and his family, his children, to the torturers until he paid the full debt. Which is exact symbol of our relationship with God. We have been forgiven much. We've been forgiven a debt we could not pay. And so the kingdom of heaven, if we see the scripture in Matthew chapter 6, it just, it's the Lord's prayer. It's amazing. It says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, if we can look at the scripture from a new perspective, forgive us our sins as, everybody say as, as we forgive others. In other words, the forgiveness of God to us is determined by the level of forgiveness we give. And we cannot 
receive what we haven't given. And if we don't exhale, we can't inhale. If we don't inhale, we can't exhale. And, and as, as often as people need forgiveness, we need to give it. And it's as, it's, I believe it's almost as often as that. As forgiveness is coming, as the need for forgiveness is coming for you, give it. I forgive. I forgive. I forgive. Even before the person even recognizes that forgiveness is needed, I believe we need to just flow, let it flow out of our life. So it's like, literally like breathing. You will keep your relationships, marriage, children, friends. How many times do people's, are people's lives ruined by the absence of forgiveness in their world? We talked to a neighbor recently, and she, her father recently passed away, so the estate was left to her and her brother. Her and her brother haven't spoken properly for years, but because the estate was left in both their names, they had to relate. They disagreed about what should happen to the estate. One of them wanted to sell it. One of them didn't want to sell it. So they argued and unforgiveness began to form in their world. Uh, they, they took each other to court. They lost tens of thousands of dollars. The thing hasn't been resolved. The thing, it is an absolute mess because of the absence of one thing. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. I tell you what, it has ruined lives. It has ruined businesses. It has ruined marriages. It has ruined children. It has ruined friendships. It has ruined churches. It is, it is the power of forgiveness is the power of the cross. I'm telling you, if that point alone is all we hear this morning, release people. Let them go. Let them go. And, and people will feel a feeling around you, forgiveness. I think God deserves a hand just for that, for giving us that gift of forgiveness. All right. Number three, faith in others. Faith in others. God wants, if we're on healthy relationships, we've got to believe in other people. And faith in others includes all sorts of aspects of relationship. It's got things tied in it. Check this out in 1 Thessalonians 5. That's hard to say this time of the morning. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, it says, God didn't set us up for an angry rejection but for salvation by our master, Jesus Christ. He died for us, a death that triggered life. Whether we're awake with the living or asleep with the dead, we're alive with Him. How cool is that? Verse 11, so, everybody say so. So, in other words, whether you're dead or alive, speak encouraging words to one another. Build up hope. So be all together in this. No one left out. No one left behind. I know you're already doing this. Just keep on doing it the way He wants you to live. God wants us to believe in one another. And the expression of belief in one another is encouraging one another. Courage one another. Who needs courage here? Well, courage comes from encouragement. As we encourage, we put courage in. We believe in one another. There's too many things pulling uh, lives down, kids down. We need to have faith in others and build each other up. I love this. The Bible says, build each other up in their most holy faith. I believe we create an atmosphere around our world and around our lives, around our families of faith in, hope towards and encouragement of people. And, And homes need to be filled with that. With your kids, Ross Campbell, a great writer on raising children and raising teenagers, said this great statement. He said, children are emotional tanks with legs. And our job as adults and as parents is to, is to fill their tank 
Because during the day, they go out and their tank leaks because life has a way of draining life and draining energy and draining encouragement out of kids. And when they come home, our job is to fill it up again and have faith in our kids and tell them, hey, you're awesome. They're not perfect. None of us are. No kids are, but our job is to fill them up. Hey, listen, guys, take the risk of blowing somebody's head up, positively that is, and and, and encourage them. Tell them they're going to make it. Tell them that God's with them. Tell them the power of God's on them. Tell them that that's going to work out. Why not? Because we all need that. Is that right? If you want healthy, blessed, great relationships, if you want healthy, blessed family, just let the spirit of encouragement. There's another verse. It's an obscure, unusual verse that I have a confession to make this morning. I've never lived it. I find it weird and unusual and challenging. And here it is, Ephesians. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. And always giving thanks to the God, Father, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. S- sing to one another. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns. I've read that scripture thousands of times. Every time I read I'm going, that's weird. How do I do that? Walk around, you're like, oh, good morning, Richard. How are you? Oh, the Lord praise me. It's Lord, awesome. Now, weird. Weird. Now, Pastor Phil does this quite regularly. It's quite embarrassing. And he's good at it. He walks around the old time in the office singing, doesn't he? He's like singing deep, this deep, awesome voice. Oh, he sings hymns, what have you. I run in the other direction. I go, that's embarrassing. The thing is, it's really awesome. Because we, now, I'm not telling you to go and do that. Right? I mean, you know, you know it feels a bit strange. But I, what, I, what I do believe is that we create and have around us and are currently described by a particular atmosphere that's around our lives. And what, what atmosphere have you created? Have you created an atmosphere of, of heaviness and, and, and people are afraid of you and like, we'll stay away from that? Who knows those people? You know, like you see them coming and like, oh, you, know, you don't know what you're going to get. Is it going to be a, 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 a criticism? A, 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 <laughs> I'm getting nervous thinking about it. Isn't it funny? It's like every one of us have a, every one of us put up a vibe. Whether you know it or not, you've got a vibe. Some positively, some negatively, some unusual like that one. Or, uh, some, some, it's, we've got a vibe. Uh, some people, and, and we have, there's a memory, there's a memory that you've created in your relationships that others remember. So that when they see you, the feeling of the last encounter that you left with them is on them. And they either, they either run to you or away from you. Uh, based on that, there's some people I know who the conversation will not be any less than 20 minutes. The, uh, even if it's like, if it, we're talking about a cup of coffee, the conversation will not be any less than 20 minutes. So I'm like, oh God, here it comes. I haven't got 20 minutes, you know. Uh, and, or or, or, or they, when they're talking, they're just like, like three inches from my face. And like, who, who, who's very, who really enjoys their personal space? Anyone? I thought, it's about there. And so I'm just giving you a warning. It's all good. When someone's there, and, and, and even when you turn around, you, you sort of, you turn around to sort of get away from the space, but they, they turn around with you, and it's like this auto thing. So we create a vibe and a feeling. 
But, but have, a, have a feeling, a vibe around you that it's, that's life-filled, that's free, that's letting people go, that's happy, that's joy-filled. I believe that we need to believe in others and, and create a feeling around ourselves because friendship is a feeling. Relationship is a feeling. Okay, number four. Number four, firm in your identity. Firm in your identity. If you know who you are, you'll be free to let people go. You'll be free to relate to them in such a way that is confident and strong and relaxed because confidence and firmness in your identity actually helps you become a more relaxed, humble person within the relationship. There's nothing, insecurity is one of the greatest breakdown aspects of relationships. Because when you're insecure, you do a whole bunch of things that mess the relationship up. Boy, there's nothing more true of that in marriages, when you're insecure. But where do you find your security? Do you find your security in the other person? Well, partially, because that's we're normal, we're human. But ultimately, you find your security in God. You, f- you f- discover your firm identity in Christ. Check this scripture out in Matthew chapter 5. First, that one. In a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. You, you are kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. The world is not a stage. And another one in Luke says this, next verse. Uh, I tell you, love your enemies. How awesome is that? Everybody say, I will. Love my enemies. Come on, say it with conviction. Say, I will love my enemies. Do you know how you love your enemies? By being secure in who you are in Christ. The reason people don't love their enemies or we don't love our enemies is because we want them to love us. We want them to treat us in such a way before we give them our love. But if you're secure in Christ, you can love anybody. If we pull the Scripture back up. Love your enemies, help and give without expecting your turn. You'll never, I promise, regret, regret it. I love that. Live out this God-created identity the way our Father lives towards us generously and graciously, even when we're at our worst. That is awesome. Who are you in Christ? That's why you've got to go to James chapter 1, verse 22. It says, He who looks at the perfect law is like looking at a mirror. And in that mirror is the image of Christ. You've got to go to the Word of God daily and go, that's who I am. And if I discover who I am in Christ, then what other people think of me, how other people treat me is irrelevant. Irrelevant. Philippians chapter 2, one of the greatest passages of Scripture. It's not on the notes, guys. Philippians chapter 2. It says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled Himself as a servant even to the point of death on a cross. The ability, humility, lowness, the ability to go low comes from the revelation of how high you are. You are not low, you go low. You're actually high. You're seated with Christ. You've got the identity and the created image of Christ in you. 
Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He was equal with God. If that was me, I would have told everybody. <laughs> I would have gone, do you know I'm equal with God? But Jesus didn't. He didn't, he didn't arrive on earth and say, you know, equality with God. He humbled himself even to the point of death. See, and as a result of that, Jesus was one of the most people flocked to be around him. They loved him. They loved what he was. They loved what he did. They loved who he represented. They loved the way he lived. They loved the way he talked. Why? Because he knew who he was. That's going to help someone this morning. Do you know who you are? If you know who you are, you can let it go. And then you become whatever you need to become to anyone. Whether it's someone who needs help, some the lowest person in your organization deserves respect and love and acceptance. Political maneuvering comes from lack of security. Political maneuvering within organizations come from, I've got to climb my way to the top because those things matter. Those things don't matter. If you know who you are, you'll get there. You'll get there. God will get you there. God gives grace to the humble. How awesome is that? Firm in your identity in Christ. Okay, number five. You've got to see the fight for relationships. If you don't see the fight for relationships, all you'll see is the fight in relationships. Every relationship is going to have a fight. You determine whether it's in it or for it. Your view will determine whether you see the fight for a relationship or the fight in a relationship. And if we have a kingdom perspective, let's check out the description of Ephesians chapter 6, and you, you know it well. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Just stop there for a second. Go back. Against the devil's schemes. Take your stand against the devil's schemes. We so misinterpret the Scripture. The devil's schemes, you know, when people say, the devil's attacking me. He's attacking me. You know how he attacks you? Through us not seeing his schemes. He attacks through relationships. And then in relationships, we think the relationship is the problem. The problem is not the relationship. The problem is our inability to see what, who is causing that tension in that relationships. That's the schemes. You've heard me say this before. God has plans. The devil has schemes. And if you don't understand the schemes and live in the plans, you'll miss the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God exists in both those arenas at the same time. I'm daily, daily walking in the plans of God and daily recognizing the schemes of the enemy. Because the schemes of the enemy are constantly trying to take me away from the plans of God, constantly. And it's within the relationships. The purpose of God and the plan of God for your life is hidden within the relationships that God has put you in. And, and the enemy comes in and causes tension, breakup, conflict, confusion, tension, all these things within a relationship. And if, unless we see what's going on, because if we continue in that scripture... And the next verse, verse 12, for our struggle. Everybody say, my struggle. 
See, it's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I've probably quoted this scripture to myself in a difficult time, I would have to say thousands of times. My mind, in a, in, in a, in a tough moment relationally, goes to this verse. Go, struggle is not against flesh and blood. Struggle is not against flesh and blood. So you can be have, there can be something going on at a, at a horizontal level, but your mind goes vertical. Your mind goes, there's a battle behind this. And, and, and it's not like you say anything aloud in the situation, because that could be sort of weird. In, in the middle of a sort of a situation, you go, yeah, whatever. But in my mind, in my heart, in my prayer life, my spirit starts turning on, going, there's something else going on. I remember as a young social worker, um, being in these, we used to deal with some of the worst child abuse cases in the country. And they'll be in these case conferences. And as a young guy, 22 years of age, and I'm like, I don't know how God thrust me into this thing, how I even cope sometimes. It was overwhelming. But we'd be in these very difficult situations. And, and then people arguing and strange tensions beginning to form over people's lives and some unusual attitudes towards things, anti-God things, anti-kingdom attitudes towards some of the clients that we're dealing with. And I remember in my breath, just, just you've you got to get the mutter going. There's got to be a spiritual mutter that you, that you carry with you everywhere you go, where you're like, God, not too loud because people think you're weird. But there's, there's a mutter of, of, of calling on God and asking God's will to happen in situations. It can, be, it can be happening at a cafe, it can be happening at work, it can be happening at home, whatever it is. But you see, you've got a revelation of what you see as the biggest scheme behind tensions that are happening in relationships. Who's with me so far on that one? Yeah, check out the scripture in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 4, it's great scripture. I love this. So I stationed armed guards at the most vulnerable places of the wall and assigned people by families with their swords, lances, and bows. After looking things over, I stood up and spoke to the nobles, officials, and everyone else. Don't be afraid of them. Put your minds on the master, great and awesome, and then fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. Fight for them. Not against them. Not with for them. The song we sang earlier, the last song of the worship set this morning, the title of that song is called Love is War. And the chorus went, fight for love. The, the best fight, and we're going to sing that song in a minute. Again, I want us to worship God. I want us to fight for the things that count in our lives. I want us to fight for our marriages, not in our marriages. I want us to fight for our kids, not with our kids. I want us to fight for this community, not with our community. I cannot stand it when the church starts to fight the community. Our job is to fight for the community, to fight for their lives. They don't know that they need a whole bunch of things. They don't know that there's certain standards in God. Our job is to live it and fight for them so that we can see a breakthrough in our community. That's the deal. And the last point is discovering in my father's house. 
all relationships come under one great umbrella, one context in my father's house. And there's a great story in the book of Luke. It's about Jesus. When Jesus was born, I love this story. It's just amazing. When Jesus was born and eight days, which was Jewish custom, uh, his mom and dad, Joseph and Mary, took him to the temple to be dedicated. That's why we, we do that with young families. And they took him to the temple to be dedicated, which is awesome. See, our role as parents, if you're a parent here today, our role as parents is to take our kids to the house of God. Is is to, they don't know. Then like Jesus wasn't, you know, a little eight-year-old baby going, you know, I'm the the little Messiah. And and he, he didn't, he couldn't get his own way there. His parents took him. Our job is to position our kids and to physically position them into the house of God. That's the job. And as, he, as he, they did that, they arrived and there was this old prophet called Simeon. And the Lord had spoken to Simeon years ago, years previous to that, and said, Simeon, you will not die until you see the Messiah. And then this day, he probably was thinking it's never going to happen, it's never going to happen. Joseph and Mary walk in with Jesus and said, this, here it is, the Messiah, and prophesied over the Messiah and said, Basically, the world will change because of this. But imagine Joseph and Mary going, wow, that's awesome. And in fact, it said Mary treasured these words in her heart, as you would, as a mum. Joseph was just like, huh? (laughs) As most of us dads are. Thank God for mums, right? Then the next part of the story, he goes from, that just jumps, the story, the, the, the narrative jumps from when Jesus was eight days old to 12 years. There's nothing in between, just bang. Suddenly, he's 12 years of age. And it said, Joseph and Mary went to the Passover feast, the annual Passover feast, it's like presents, took him there. And then on the way home, driving back from Darlinghurst, uh, with the, whatever, they, they lost Jesus, terrible thing to lose the Messiah. (laughs) And for three days, they searched amongst the touring and the family and their friends and could not find Jesus. You know the story. You've heard it a zillion times, particularly around Christmas time. And I love this. And they finally made their way back to Jerusalem and went to church and found Jesus in the house of God. And we just pick up the narrative uh, around verse 40, I think, if you can pull that up, Luke chapter 2. And the, the end of the dedication part says, the child became strong. He was filled with wisdom. The grace of God was on him. That's great. So the, the, the promise to our children when we dedicate them and when we position them in the house of God is that promise that they'll become strong. And there's verse 41. Uh, uh, every year Jesus went, went, went to the Jerusalem of the past. Scroll down to, sorry guys, to, yeah, there you go. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teenagers. The teenagers. So, <laughs> the other teenagers. Actually, he was a preteen, you know, it was a difficult stage. But anyway, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding, his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. The next verse. Why are we, I love this. I love his response. 
why were you searching for me? He's not saying, why were you looking for me? In other words, in other words he wasn't saying, you know, I don't need to be with you. He was saying, why, why, didn't, you, why didn't you know where I was? Did you know I had to be in my father's house? That one version, New American Standard Bible says, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Okay. It's one thing for us as parents to bring and position our children into the house of God. But somewhere along the line, we've got to position ourselves in the Father's house and find it. Now, he was, Jesus was part of the nation of Israel. He's part of the Jewish tradition. But he discovered that he had to literally, he snuck out of his relationships, if you like, natural relationships, because he knew he had, he, there was another relationship that he had to discover, the relationship with the Father's house. He, and he put at risk his relationship with his own parents for a season. Because watch this, watch this. Because eventually all those relationships were restored. Because the next few verses, it says he went back with his parents and obeyed them. And it says in verse, I think it's 52, it says he grew in favor with God and man. Because he put the relationship with the father's house as the first priority, every other relationship came in its proper order. Say the word, say order. See, the thing is, God wants all of us to put relationships in their proper order. If we don't get them in their proper order, we'll, then, then the relationships that we have, notice no matter who they're with, you have the best marriage in the world, the greatest kids in the world, the most incredible boss, relationship, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Unless relationships are in kingdom order, then no other relationship is, will work. Anybody get just what I just said? I'm telling you, what I'm, what I'm telling you to you now is probably the most important thing we figure out. When we first met Christ and came into the, the house of God, Bernie and I, and my sister Annie, and we came to church. Look, our family, we, and we have the most amazing family, they were challenged. They were challenged with what we're becoming part of. They were challenged with what the, how, how often we're going to church. They were challenged with the fact that we were giving so much. They were challenged with all sorts of them. When we had kids, they were challenged with the fact that we dedicated our children and didn't christen them. They were all sorts of things. But we knew that the father's house relationship was the most important relationship. And we had to put other relationships at risk to get this relationship established. People didn't understand. Even Jesus, it says his, when he was, got to 30, 31 years of age, his brothers and sisters came to his preaching campaigns. And were on the outside of the house where Jesus was preaching, hollering out abuse. True story. They're going, he's mad. He's crazy. This was his brothers and sisters. And Jesus' response was crazy. He said, who are my mother? Who is my brothers and sisters? Only those who believe in my name. It's like radical thinking. Guess what though? Two years later, when he was dying on the cross for humanity because he knew he had to keep those relationships intact, guess who was at the foot of the cross? His mother and his brother. And his brothers and sisters came into the kingdom of God. When we understand the power of the order of relationships and fight, fight, fight for love, fight for God, fight for this relationship.
with God's house. Because if that one falls apart, every other one will fall apart. I've seen it as a pastor. I've seen it literally way too often, probably hundreds and hundreds of times, where people do not see the power of that primary connection in the house of God with the Father. And they, they, they go out to another relationship and go, I need to keep this one intact. And they let go of this one and they grab a hold of this one with both hands and eventually this one falls apart. Then they go from that to another relationship. That one falls apart. I'm like, no, keep under the glory of God. Keep under the order of God's power and presence. And you'll still have tensions. You'll still have stuff. You'll have your bad days. I'm telling you, a bad day in the Father's house is far better than a bad day out of the Father's house. Because eventually He'll restore that relationship. And all those things came into order. And here's, I'll finish with this point. You can only get so much through your natural generation. What you get, what you, and what you don't get by generation, God wants to give you by revelation. There's only so much that you're, I know there's only so much that me as a dad can give my kids as a father. So what I do is I bring them into the house so that they form a relationship with the Father and He gives them what I was unable to give them. I can't give them, I, give, I, I search God for wisdom and strength and anointing to be a dad, but I know those gaps, big gaps in me. So I said, God, you be their father. You show them things that I didn't show them. You show them better ways of the way I did it. And so if I just appeal to them, guys, don't leave the house. Don't leave the father's house because you, you can get in there. And thank God they have. None of our kids have ever left church, what have you. And I know they're doing a whole bunch of things because they've stayed in the house. And every other relationship, including their own marriages and their kids, I know my grandkids, I know my great-grandkids, I know my great-great-great-great-grandkids, they're all going to follow Christ as, as, as different ones because God begins to honor and put in order the things that He has. Amen. I think the Lord deserves a big hand right now. Can we stand to our feet? presence of God, just as you're standing. Maybe you're here today and you've all the things, maybe the first five points well, like, yeah, that's cool. You know, I, believe, I need to forgive. I need to figure out some of those things. It's pretty cool. But maybe the last point didn't make any sense to you or maybe it did make sense to you and you realize you need to respond to that. So if you're here today and you've never met the Father, the beginner and the creator of all things relationship. The kingdom of God is not an organization called the church. The kingdom of God is a huge family. And the head of that family is God the Father. And all we are is a bunch of kids who have been adopted into this family. That's all it is. When you, come, when you become a Christian, all it is is you coming home. And to, today I'd like to give here, anyone who, who's here who's never in a real sense, in a genuine sense, connected with God the Father. There's this great scripture in John chapter 1. It says this in verse 12. But to all who believed in Him and accepted Him, He gave the right to become children of God. 
They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. God wants you to be born into Him and into His house, into His kingdom. And in that, in that birthing, there's a plan, there's a destiny, there's relationships that will blow your, blow your mind in the blessing that's in them. Thanks for listening to the C3 Church podcast. Visit us online at myc3church.net. Join us next time for more great teaching.